Okay, this is chapter four of our Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. And this one is titled Imparting and Receiving the Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you could also look at it as how to receive the baptism in the Spirit. This is designed to help both those who are sharing the baptism in the Spirit and, and also praying for people to get baptized in the Spirit, as well as those who are receiving the baptism in the Spirit. The uh, first three messages in this series kind of lay the groundwork to get to this one. The first one was called The Larger Picture, The Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we dealt with the fact that the kingdom of God uh, is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Wherever the power of the Holy Spirit is making himself manifest, that's where the kingdom of God is making it itself manifest. Je Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, or the Matthew version says by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said to wait in Jerusalem till you've received power uh, through the promise of the Father. Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. So we want to challenge you to think about the, the fact that uh, much of Western Christianity does not have miracles, casting out of demons, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and other demonstrations of the Spirit that Paul seemed to be indicating in Corinthians was part of the proclamation of the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, he says, My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 20, he goes on to say, For the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. And that Greek word power is the word dunamis, which we get dynamic or dynamite from. It was a demonstration or manifestation. Uh, you cannot see a spirit, as Jesus says in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes, but you and you hear the sound thereof, but you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God wants to manifest himself through miracles, through healings, through words of wisdom, through deliverance, uh, in all sorts of activities of the Holy Spirit. He wants to manifest his presence in our worship, in our proclamation of the gospel, in our Christian life. So we looked at the person of the Spirit, that he is God and, and uh, he is fully deity. We looked at his ministry, that he came to represent the Father and the Son to implement their counsels and do their will. Then uh, the larger context is designed to, to ask us, if we have all there is of the Holy Spirit, then why are we not seeing more of the Holy Spirit's activity in our midst? There must be things of the Holy Spirit we're missing. And we're suggesting that uh, for many, this experience called being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a stepping stone into moving into greater ways in the Holy Spirit. In chapter two of this series, we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then we went on to look at some activities of the Holy Spirit after the apostolic age so that we demonstrate that the Holy Spirit has done healings, miracles, casting out demons, raised people from the dead, and all these types of things uh, throughout the centuries in various uh, manifestations of the church and moves, various moves of God and so forth. They did not end with the apostolic age. There are literally thousands and thousands of documented cases of people moving in the power of the Holy Spirit after the age of the apostles. 
chapter 3, we looked at the whole concept of biblical patterns and models, and we saw that there were five steps that you take when you're entering kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. You receive Jesus Christ, that is, you're born again, you're converted, you become a Christian. You're water baptized and baptized in the Holy Spirit, two halves of one baptism, and you're delivered and healed, and you enter a New Testament way of life with daily spiritual devotions, scripture reading, accountability to other Christians, and a community way of life. Uh, that's the pattern of how to get started in the things of God in the New Testament. Uh, we need to get back to that pattern, of course. And then we saw that uh, one of those steps is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we so we looked at five biblical patterns of people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts and five examples of that happening and saw that in those patterns, it was a distinct and separate experience from the new birth. The initial evidence of, the, of that inward experience was the outward experience of speaking in tongues, that it normally followed shortly after conversion, anywhere from a few moments to a few days, that it wasn't years later, and that it was in an atmosphere of spiritual impartation, normally with the laying on of hands of other spirit-filled anointed people. And finally, that that should lead into additional biblical manifestations. We should grow in the spirit, in the fruits of the spirit, uh, witnessing, uh, boldness for witnessing and proclamation of the gospel, attesting miracles, increased zeal and passion for God, gifts of the spirit. All these things should be the outworking of growing in the power in the presence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Today in chapter four, we want to look at imparting and receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, some practical guidelines. Now, whether you're uh, trying to share with somebody about the baptism in the Spirit or you're preparing your own heart, you want to first start by recognizing a very important truth is that being baptized in the Holy Spirit is called the promise from the Father, and that phrase refers to many scriptures in the Old Testament, most notably in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 33, that God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, that he will put his spirit within them, that they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, uh, that he'll write his law upon our hearts and so forth, that the experience of the Holy Spirit would be something uh, greater in power and kind of quantitatively greater, qualitatively greater, more distributed among every believer uh, than what we see in the Old Testament. And we, in fact, do see that in the ministry of Christ and his disciples and ongoing into the ministry of the New Testament in the book of Acts and so forth. Uh, then we see that at various times throughout church history. So what we want to start with today is, is saying that uh, the phrase, the promise of the Father is for every believer, every follower of Christ. We've come to redefine believer in modern times as someone who intellectually assents to the doctrines of Christianity. But a believer in the New Testament was someone who was taking up their cross, uh, denying themselves, not loving their old life unto death, love, uh, a new creation in Christ Jesus. A believer was a follower. A believer was a disciple. There was not this optional thing of after you've become a believer, you might want to consider being a disciple. The, the two were one. The disciples uh, were, were first called Christians at Antioch. There weren't Christians that weren't disciples. And so for every disciple of Christ, for everyone who has it in their heart to want to follow Christ, 
one of God's gifts, one of God's graces is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so that you can receive a prayer language whereby you can edify yourself, build up, build yourself up in the Spirit, and be used of God in greater service, uh, greater passion for his word, greater zeal for worship, and so forth. So let's look at this concept of it's God's promise for every believer first by looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And uh, it, it says this, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And again, that phrase, the promise of the Father, is, is uh, understood by the hearers to mean this greater filling of the Holy Spirit as promised. We already mentioned Jeremiah. Uh, Joel, for instance, says, I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And, uh, and at the baptism in the spirit in Acts chapter 2, when Peter makes his famous day of Pentecost presentation that Jesus is both Lord, uh, Yahweh, uh, and, and Messiah, Christ, with us, he starts it off by saying this, what you see here is the fulfillment of what God promised, the promise of the Father that he gave through Joel, that, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that that is the beginning of that. So in Acts 1-4, again, he says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, in at the end of the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus is uh, dealing with the same subject, and he says, uh, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witness of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father. So the same language as he uses in, in Acts chapter 1, the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city, that is Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high. That would be good... Uh, advice for us to follow today. Much of what we do in, in Christianity today is not clothed with power from on high. We need to be clothed with un power from on high so that we can proclaim the kingdom with signs and wonders following, with attesting miracles, with uh, people actually being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his, of his beloved son, with demons being cast out and, and people being released from the bondage of darkness. So again, Jesus is not speaking this to just some elite group of believers, uh, some special group, but he is speaking this to all Christians that they are going to receive the promise of the Father. Uh, again, in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul speaking says that in Christ, in him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, first thing is you have to hear it, as Romans 10 brings out. How can they believe unless they hear? Uh, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, that's a time thing, as because they had also believed, then they were sealed in, with him 
sealed in him in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's that phrase again. So being baptized in the Holy Spirit is actually a promise that God gives to seal believers in the covenant. It's kind of a down payment. It's as, as Hebrews talks about it as a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. It's like an engagement ring. It's a down payment, or it's like when you buy a house, you put down a certain amount of earnest money uh, be, to, to say, yes, I'm going to fulfill all that I'm promising here. So uh, baptizing the Holy Spirit uh, is important to every believer because it brings a greater assurance. Uh, when, when Jesus was himself baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and the Father spoke audibly and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He, uh, Romans 8 says that, that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Being immersed in the Holy Spirit in a greater way brings also a greater security and a greater sense of our son and daughtership that we are the bride of Christ, that God will fulfill all that's promised to him as, as, as covenant members of his family. Uh, Paul, Peter picks up on the same language at the end of his Pentecost speech in Acts 2, 37 through 39. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, number one, and each of you uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, number two. And number three, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. So it's not any particular generation. It's not the age of the apostles. When the Bible speaks of children, it's speaking of seed. It's speaking of all generations to come. The promise is for you and your children. It's for all who are far off. It's not confined to the Roman Empire or the Mediterranean world. It's for the whole earth. And it's for as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That, that clears it all up right there. If you have been called to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the promise of being baptized in the Spirit, which can only mean having happened to you what happened to the 120 believers earlier in the book of Acts, that they, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That promise is for everyone. Uh, it's That's important to get a hold of because many struggle with, well, uh, and in fact, some, some Christian groups have erroneously over time, uh, on occasion, made being baptized in the Holy Spirit some mark of maturity or some mark of... Uh, having received it all or something like that. No, it's just a deposit. It's a gift. It's a, uh, a partial, a partaking of the powers of the age of, of the come. It's a, it's a partial deposit on our full inheritance. It's an introduction into moving in the gifts and the power and the anointing of the Spirit as our Lord Jesus did after the Holy Spirit came on him at his water baptism and the Holy Spirit descended as it does and baptized him in the Spirit. God spoke affirmingly, this is my beloved son. Then the spirit led him into the wilderness as he successfully went through the wilderness with prayer and fasting. And he then came out in the power of the spirit and began to proclaim the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That pattern is for every Christian believer. It's something God wants to give you at the beginning of your Christian life, your Christian walk, so that you can... Uh, 
mature in a new dimension, a new kingdom. We are not supposed to be naturally minded, uh, purely natural people. In fact, Paul rebukes the Corinthians and says, are you not walking like mere men? Christians are supposed to walk supernatural, above the way a natural man could walk. They are supposed to walk by a new spirit, a new attitude, a new power, and getting baptized in the spirit is a tool toward that end. In Luke 11, verses uh, 11 through 13, Jesus says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, Jesus is assuming several things that his readers understand. In this passage that we often miss in modern times because we've, we've failed to understand the whole concept of biblical symbolism and biblical metaphor. But first of all, Jesus is assuming that our heavenly Father is a much better loving, positive father for us than our own natural fathers, no matter how good of fathers they are. Hebrews 12 brings out that we were subject to our fathers and they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but God actually disciplines us for our good. God is actually the perfect father. And so, um, first of all, Jesus is assuming that uh, your heavenly father is, can be trusted to be a much better, perfect, good, holy father. Secondly, Jesus says, uh, if you ask for a snake, he, uh, or if you ask for a fish, you won't get a snake instead of a fish. Now he's using the metaphor, a fish is symbolic all through the scriptures of God's people, of good things, good nutrition, and so forth. Jesus feeds people fish. Uh, several times in the Gospels, both before and after his resurrection. Uh, and a snake is symbolic throughout the scriptures of something demonic, something negative. Uh, of course, this, the first image of it is the serpent, but that image follows all the way through to the great serpent in Revelation. So Jesus is saying, if you ask your heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, you do not need to be afraid that you're going to get some other spirit. Now, this is very crucial because false religions, speaking in tongues is a spiritual language. Therefore, demonic religions can speak in tongues. They can't speak in the tongues given by the Holy Spirit, but they do, uh, as you saw with Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses and many other places in the scripture, uh, there are false signs and wonders that oppose the purposes of God. And Jesus is making it clear that if you ask your heavenly Father in Jesus' name, for the good gift of the Holy Spirit, you won't get a, a counterproductive spirit. You won't get a demonic spirit. He repeats the analogy for emphasis by saying, if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion. Also an egg, something of good nutrition, something at the beginning of life, something that births life, versus a scorpion that, that's usually symbolic of something nasty, evil, with a stinger, wicked. So he's wanting to assure us that you're not going to get some Hindu tongues or some, uh, some uh, Buddhist tongues or, or some demonic uh, nature-worshiping spirit or something like this. If you ask the Heavenly Father, and he's saying that this is for his children. 
He makes no marks, remarks about the maturity of the children. He just remarks that they're sons or daughters, that they are children of God. And that is the qualification for getting baptized in the Spirit, that you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have taken up your cross. You are desiring to know God, to please God, that there's you've been recreated in Christ Jesus with a new motivation, a new attitude. You've been born again. If you have that, then the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you. Now, that's very important to assure anyone that you're ministering the baptism in the Spirit to, or if you're receiving the Holy Spirit, you need to think on those verses that we've just read, Acts 1-4, Luke 24, Acts 2-37, and especially Luke 11-11 through 13, that the promise is for you. Now, I want to deal, secondly, uh, point Roman numeral 2B on your outline, if you're following, I want to deal secondly with some common hindrances to receiving the Holy Spirit. These uh, may or may not be relevant depending on the genuineness of the person that's been converted, uh, the background they come out of in terms of what aspects of witchcraft or the occult or demonic uh, habits they've touched or whatever. But in some cases, uh, there are hindrances to being filled with the Holy Spirit that need to be diagnosed and ministered to if a person is going to um, be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want to list five of the most common hindrances to receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Number one is incomplete conversions. John 14, 17 says that this is the, that the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. So he's saying uh, the, the spirit of truth, which is one of the many titles of the Holy Spirit, the world can't receive the spirit of truth because it doesn't see him or know him. It doesn't perceive him. Only someone who has received the Holy Spirit in a regeneration sense in being born again can receive the subsequent experience called being baptized in the Holy Spirit um, because that person has started to know the Holy Spirit, has started to see the Holy Spirit, not not literally, but figuratively, has begun to perceive and know the voice of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 5, a time will come when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear it will uh, be brought forth into life. A person who is born again is someone who is spiritually dead and by the Holy Spirit has begun to hear the voice of God the Father and Jesus the Son speaking through the scriptures to them and has has been quickened to follow Jesus into life. So again, this, uh, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him, see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So he's basically saying that when the Holy Spirit is already in your life, he abides with you, but he will come in you in some greater measure uh, called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So um, this is important more and more in our day and age. One of the things that's become very common, uh, we've experienced this at, at Grace Christian Fellowship. Many other people testified to this. Because of the nature of the gospel that's being both taught and lived in America, often we have to lead Christians to Christ. 
I don't know how to put it any other way. The, the, uh, the vast majority of people who walk in our doors and who begin to fellowship with us have received a gospel that's less than the gospel. Uh, there's less conviction of sin. It's uh, man-centered on what God will do for you versus God-centered on what his calling and purposes are and his kingdom's about. Uh, there's uh, no understanding that that lordship of Christ and and taking up your cross and following him and, and trying to be a disciple, be, to be like him in, in motivation, spirit, attitude. All of this is left out of the modern gospel. And many, many times you'll find uh, that the real issue that you end up having to work with in, in trying to disciple young Christians is that you can't disciple someone who's unconverted. And in many, many cases, people have gone to church all of their lives. They've even gone to Bible college and their conversion is yet either incomplete, inadequate, shallow, and sometimes non-existent. And so uh, you, that's one of the reasons why it's very important to stay, keep your ministry, your worship, your teaching, everything about how you disciple, very gospel-centered. That's especially needed in our day and age. So that's the first hindrance to receiving the baptism in the Spirit is often we're dealing with people who have an inadequate or incomplete conversion and uh, their whole experience with being born again is shaky, uh, misunderstood. Uh, the heart hasn't been sanctified to want to know Jesus, to want to make him Lord, to want to love him, and so forth. And so you're ending up leading people to Christ who've been assured wrongly in some cases that, that everything is fine, and yet they haven't really worked through the basic issues of the gospel. The second hindrance to uh, receiving the baptism in the spirit. I call it the Charlie Brown syndrome. Now I base that on, uh, there was a Charlie Brown Halloween special and uh, the the various Linus, Lucy, uh, the Peanuts figures, I guess they're called, were going trick-or-treating. And um, as they would leave each house, one of the young people would say, I got a Snickers bar. And then someone would say, I got a lollipop. I, I got a candy bar, and Charlie Brown would go, I got a rock. <laughs> and uh, I didn't do it very well, but he'd, he'd, say, he'd get kind of depressed, and he'd go, I got a rock. And uh, many of us, uh, for, for various reasons, the gospel we've heard, uh, the brokenness of, of the family in our day and age, or whatever, many of us really struggle with believing that God is a good God, he's our heavenly father, and he wants to give freely all the things that people are, that, that God has promised, the provisions, the things he wants to bless his children with. We have trouble believing God wants to do that for us. I myself was hindered by the Charlie Brown syndrome. Now, the I'll tell you that story in just a second, but the antidote to it is the same verses we read in Luke 11. Now, suppose one of you fathers has asked for a son, for a fish, he won't give him a snake instead. Uh, if he asks for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion instead. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your great, good, perfect, holy, loving, redemptive Heavenly Father who sent his Son to die for your sins freely give all things to those who believe? Many scriptures attest to that in the New Testament. So... Uh, all progress in the spiritual life is by trust, 
by faith, by by believing and following the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of God and his character. And, uh, and many of us have to overcome the Charlie Brown syndrome. When I was first coming to the Lord in the summer of 1974, I was taken to a Pentecostal church by a friend of mine named Parley. My, uh, my parents were born again Christians. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. I was a little bit familiar with speaking in tongues and gifts of the Spirit. My parents actually had an active deliverance ministry, casting demons out of people and so forth. So I was a little exposed to it, although I was in rebellion against that whole life doing drugs and so forth. And I began, I came to the Lord and I began to read my Bible and God began to deal with me to clean up my life. And I uh, started reading the Bible and started occasionally attending church, not too regularly at first. And uh, this guy shared about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was moving on my heart. And I felt like, yeah, I need this experience called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I didn't go forward and, and ask to be prayed for when they gave an invitation to do so. And the reason I didn't is because I was still really dealing with basic issues of the gospel. I was dealing with the Charlie Brown syndrome in my heart. I felt like I've done so many bad things. I've dealt drugs, I've stolen, I've cheated, I've lied. Uh, you know, God wouldn't baptize somebody like me in the Holy Spirit. And I was still struggling to break out of that lifestyle. And on the way home in the car, I said, do you think someone like me with all the bad things I've done and is still struggling with that God would give me this wonderful gift called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he said, if you truly desired to be filled with God's Spirit, he would. And I actually prayed and received the baptism in the Spirit later that night. So the Charlie Brown syndrome is hindrance number two. Um, you need to rethink the gospel and understand it's not based on your maturity. It's not based on what you're still struggling with. It's based on if God has has caused you to be regenerated. If there's something in your heart that wants to please God, love God, that you're seeking to follow him, you're hungry to read his word, different things like this, no matter how immature, how imperfect, no matter how many uh, besetting sins you're still struggling with or whatever, God will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's part of his gifting to empower you. It, Many people think that God won't baptize you in the Holy Spirit till you get to some level of maturity. And that's about as biblical as thinking I can't go to church or I can't get born again until I clean up my act. You, can, you actually receive God full of need, full of being lost, full of darkness, and you receive the light into your heart. That's what happens in regeneration. And that's frankly what happens in every step into the things of God. You, God gives his great and merciful gifts to, to we who are, who are undeserving and inadequate based on his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, and all that he accomplished in the gospel through Jesus Christ. The third hindrance is, called, is occult involvement. In 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 22, Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than we are, than he are we. Now in Acts 19, 19, you'll notice that they were taking their magic books and their occult things and renouncing them. Renounce means to disavow, to disown, 
to have no shared files means to cancel the accounts uh, and it does involve if you're if you're involved in any sort of strong demonic activity such as pornography uh, occult witchcraft sorcery Ouija boards any any kind of demonic thing you have to break air, all paraphernalia to do deal with that. You have to renounce it. You have to disavow it. You have to understand that, that you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, and it has to be a clean break. I think the number one thing that hinders Christians from growing in our day and age is that most Christians have various areas of compromise with things that they don't want to fully give up in order to walk with Christ. And often those things are things that have strong demonic influence in them, especially areas of the occult and sexual immorality and illegal soul ties that need to be broken. And so that can become a great hindrance. I first was made aware of this uh, in 1985 or 84, somewhere in the fall of 84. I think it was actually the, the early in the winter of 85, I was sent by the elders of a church that we were part of in Bowling Green to plant a church in Dayton, Ohio. And there was a young lady from Nigeria who had come to Christ at our campus ministry meeting on a Tuesday night from the University of Dayton campus. And she was at our Friday night fellowship. And after our Friday night fellowship, a number of people were sharing with her about being baptized in the Holy Spirit because the biblical pattern is that people receive the baptism in the Spirit within a few hours to a few days after their conversion. So although she was three days old in the Lord, they were sharing with her and helping her to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, which should be the more biblical norm. And as we began to pray for her, she began to hyperventilate and her face began to contort and she began to twist, her body began to twist and different things. And I prayed and I said, Lord, what is happening? And he basically said, this is a scene like the Gospels, where when Jesus would come into places like synagogues and various places full of the power of the Holy Spirit, if there were people with demonic problems, the demonic spirits would freak out at the because they don't like the increased presence of the Holy Spirit. They don't like the light. They don't like the power of God's Holy Spirit being present. And what happened is it turned out that this girl's family had been heavily involved in voodoo and witchcraft and so forth. And we ended up having to cast a bunch of demons out of her. And then she got baptized in the Holy Spirit. During the course of the deliverance, she actually slithered across the basement floor and her body contorted like a snake in a way that a human body couldn't even move. And she was totally set free from a number of demonic spirits. She was wonderfully baptized in the Holy Spirit, received a prayer language to worship and speaking tongues and and love God, her, oh, my wife led her older sister to the Lord upstairs in our living room that night, same night, and they went on to be members of our church for years. Uh, she married a guy that they led our book ministry and became wonderfully mature, fruitful Christians for many years, and still are. So uh, sometimes when there's been a cult involvement, uh, or other serious demonic problems, sometimes people need to get a, a measure of deliverance from demonic spirits as they're getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, that can be a hindrance to the, to the power of the Holy Spirit flowing into them and through them. The fourth thing that, that can be a hindrance to be receiving the baptism in the Spirit is unforgiveness or bitterness. 
In Matthew 6, 12 through 15, Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then God will not forgive your transgressions. Many of the important experiences in getting founded with the Lord can require taking some time to teach the person what forgiveness is, and they need to out loud actively uh, forgive anyone living or dead that has harmed them in any way. This can, this can be necessary at the time they receive Christ as Lord and Savior. It can be necessary for, uh, it's almost always necessary to receive deliverance, and it can often be necessary to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So compare that, by the way, with Matthew uh, chapter 18, the whole parable from verse 21 through 35, at the end of, uh, it, of which the, the, uh, the master in the parable calls his wicked slave and says, I forgave you all this debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Nothing will bring you into the realm of the demonic having influence in your life to bring sickness, uh, depression, anger management problems, uh, bitterness, and so forth than holding on to unforgiveness. We need to forgive anyone because what Jesus is trying to make clear in the parable, what God is forgiving us from is so much infinitely more great infinitely greater than anything that any human being has ever done to us. So he goes on to say, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So a fourth hindrance can often be spirits of bitterness or unforgiveness. And uh, you may need to lead the person in a little short teaching on what forgiveness is and how to, uh, to pray and, and have them out loud pray and forgive. A fifth thing that's very common, uh, especially among people being raised in Western culture, and Western culture has spread throughout the world because, for instance, in People's Republic of China, I have a guy that I have a Bible study with, a young Christian who's really growing very well in the Lord, and he tells me that he, he's from the People's Republic of China. He'd never heard of Christianity when he came to America for graduate school. Uh, he would, came to Christ. He's really growing. He's hungry. He's reading his Bible all the time. He's very excited about the Lord and, and maturing quite nicely. But he tells me it's very difficult for Chinese people to begin to move into the healings, uh, anointed, spirit-filled worship, uh, uh, speaking in tongues, deliverance. Any realm of the spirit is tough for them because they grow up in, Karl Marx said that communism is a humanism. And the, the communist political party of the People's Republic of China it controls all the schools and what's taught in the schools, even more so than what we have with our government-sponsored public schools in America. And they teach a philosophy called dialectical materialism. They teach that people who believed in the reality of a spiritual world were, were uninformed, unintelligent, pre-scientific, people and that any intelligent people don't believe in such phenomena. 
Now that attitude of unbelief is through all of Western culture. And so uh, you often encounter the more, sometimes the more of an engineer type person or more scientifically type person, the more struggle they have to trust the Lord to step out into spiritual realities. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds. Speaking of the God of this world, a small g, speaking of Satan and his kingdom, has blinded the minds. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us a natural-minded person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Um, there's a term I coined that I, I probably, I've always thinking that I need to come up with a better term, but I call it solical fiber. One of the things that you work with when you're helping young Christians grow is almost everyone comes to the Lord kind of wired a certain way. Some people are spiritually sensitive and some people are here emotionally. Some people hear very rationally, but they have trouble hearing any other way but logically and so forth. And so you need to understand that a, a, a mature person hears both with their mind and with their spirit and and the two work the way God designed them to work together. Uh, a, a mature person can, it says Jesus perceived in his spirit that the Pharisees were thinking such and such. Jesus was aware that the Pharisees, he was aware of these things by the spirit of God. We were meant to be spirit filled, spirit led, spirit empowered, and the spirit was supposed to speak to us and give us discernment and insights about the reality of the spiritual dimension around us all the time. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about Western culture is after the, the Enlightenment, mindsets came into Western culture that are not true. They people are, are a priori anti-supernatural. They're pseudo-rational. They're pseudo-scientific. They're a priori skeptical. They, people are are wired to have less than than being able to hear spiritually. And some people, oftentimes, when you deal with people who are scientific or pseudo-rational or uh, engineer types, they may have a more difficult time being empowered by the Spirit. Also, if they've come through uh, through churches that teach cessationism or that um, are third wave churches that theoretically believe that the Holy Spirit does things these days, but never would believe you should pursue that or or make that active, if they've been taught against the Holy Spirit in various ways and against his workings, then you may need to help their faith and you may actually be dealing with a demonic spirit of unbelief that is that is lodged on their mind and hindering them from hearing the power of the Holy Spirit speak to their hearts. Uh, in Matthew 13, 58, it says that Jesus did not do many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. The reason for their unbelief was because they had seen him grow grew up and they were thinking, they were thinking, saw the natural package and they couldn't get past that. Doesn't matter what the reason for the unbelief is. In cultures of unbelief, such as what America is today, in all nations that have been, that have been affected 
by the Western Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment ideas, uh, you're dealing with a great deal of unbelief. So those are the five hindrances. Now, one of the things that's very clear is you may not need to minister to those at all. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit in those, the, those realms, but you may not need to minister to those at all. I usually teach people about them ahead of time. I let them go back and pray and evaluate before God uh, if, if they're struggling with those things, but often they may be blind to various things they're struggling with. So just be aware that there are some common hindrances to being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I've listed the five most common that, I, that I'm aware of. All right, so point 2C, how to minister and receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're the one sharing about it or, and praying for people, or if you're the one receiving it, these are some good guidelines. First thing is that you need to ask and receive by trust or by faith. All, spherical, all progress in the spiritual life is by hearing the scripture, by hearing the voice of God, not just hearing an intellectual scripture, but an intellectual and a spirit and anointed scripture that, that illuminates your heart and you take a step of faith. If you notice in the Bible, no progress is ever happens without the person stepping out to meet uh, Jesus in faith. The woman who touched his hem saying, if I could just touch his hem, uh, the, the blind man who, who Jesus called, it says he threw off his cloak. If you understand what a cloak was in that culture, it's clear that he understood that he was going to be seen when he came back and was going to have no problem finding it. All Every progress, you know, Peter in the boat, he says, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come. Jesus is the one who says come, but Peter's the one who has to step out of the boat. And God requires that. When you are born again, you have to ask. You have to receive. You have to confess your sins. You have to repent from your sins. You have to ask God for a new life and a new heart. You have to ask him to cleanse your conscience and all these kinds of things that you meet him uh, by taking a step of faith. Likewise, that is going to happen when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, in Luke 11, again, Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father? So first of all, the, per the, the person praying needs to understand that they are a son or daughter of God, that they've been born again. That they are, uh, that God wants to, you know, Jesus said, be of good cheer. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. God wants to give them the things of the kingdom of God. And so if you ask in faith, God will give it to you. But in Acts 2 4, they took a step of faith. It, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all 120 people. Verse 1 of that chapter, Acts 2 1, says that all 120 were, were together in one place at the day of Pentecost. Uh, verse 2, there came a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire and verse 3 and so forth. And verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, a lot of translations, I think the NIV says enabled them to speak. Other translations says enabled them or empowered them. What happens is that God begins to get, when you ask God to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, 
God will uh, fill you with the Holy Spirit and you will be able to speak in tongues. The way you can is that you have to take a step. When God begins to give you the words, you have to begin to, to actively say them. And it works much like this. In the natural, when you learn a language, you learn usually one syllable at first, da, da, ma, ma, you repeat it over and over. But then uh, you start, your parents get all excited and, and they encourage you. And so you learn ball and doggy and so forth. But your, your limit and how fast vocabulary comes is by your cognitive abilities, how much input you're getting from mature adults and so forth. Likewise, how fast your prayer language comes is not limited by cognitive abilities. It's limited by trust and stepping out in faith. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14 and 15 says, if I pray, speak in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will both pray in the spirit, which he just defined as speaking in tongues, and I will pray by my mind also, which would be the language you know. For most people listening to me, that would probably be English. Then he says, I will both sing with the spirit and I will sing with my mind also. When God begins to give you a prayer language, it is not limited to cognitive development rules. It's limited to trusting and stepping out in the flow. And as you begin to say the syllables he's giving you, he will give you more. If your faith is flowing and strong, you will get a whole prayer language within a few seconds. Other people may need to struggle for a few minutes. There's where it really helps to have some powerfully anointed, walking clean with the Lord, humble, broken team of people praying with the persons. That's why we don't generally do it at altar calls with every sort of person praying for them. We generally have people who we know are walking clean, humble, broken, consistent, mature with the Lord, and we have them pray for the person and lay hands on them to impart the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of that and because of building up people's faith this way, in almost all cases, we have people break through into a whole prayer language right away within, a, within seconds to, to minutes. And um, as you break through, it's going to be like another analogy I like to teach is that your spirit, picture your spirit as a little juice glass. And God's spirit is an infinite ocean that mercifully he just takes out a big ladle and uh, begins to drip it into your spirit. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. All words have a spiritual anointing on them. Now, some words only have the anointing of someone's human natural spirit. Some words, we often know people who have demonic anointings. Many of us have experienced that maybe if we have an anger problem where uh, all of a sudden a different level of anointing comes on our anger and we're subject to a spirit of rage or something. Uh, but we've also all heard people who uh, have a great anointing of the Holy Spirit on their words. All words have spiritual anointing. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. As a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, they will begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit enables them. They have to respond to that enablement by saying the syllables that are coming to them. Again, they won't understand the Spirit symbols. 1 Corinthians 14 says that no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks ministry, mysteries. 
They are not, they are not words that you understand, but they are a language of words. Now, as a person responds in faith, the words have drops of anointing in them. And using their analogy of the juice glass, that glass will begin to fill up with the power of the Holy Spirit. As you don't shrink back in faith, there comes a time when it will just start to overflow. If you start to have doubts and, well, how do I know I'm not making this up? How do I know it's not gibberish or whatever? The glass will start to empty and shrink back down. And so there's a, there's a little moment of spiritual warfare, just like when Peter was getting out of the boat. He heard Jesus. I don't know how much he thought through that hanging onto this boat really is of very little value in this, with these 30-foot waves and, or any of that, but he trusted Jesus. He began to focus on Jesus, and he began to walk on water. However, it says that he began to notice the winds and the waves, and he began to sink. Notice that Jesus didn't let him sink and go, I knew you couldn't, trust me. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't let him sink. And sometimes when you're praying for some people, especially if they're coming out of natural-minded mindsets, they've been taught by cessationists or various reasons that they're struggling with unbelief, you may need to encourage them a little. But for, almost, for everyone, what happens is as they speak in tongues, as they speak the syllables that are coming to them, a second, third, fourth syllable will start coming, eventually phrases, whole language, and it will begin to flow. Now, as that uh, begins to flow, there's almost always a point, uh, usually qu quickly if you've prepared them, where they'll understand this is something entirely different than something you can make up. It's entirely different than gibberish. It's not something I understand, but I can sense the power and flow of God's Holy Spirit. I know it's a language. Uh, Paul calls them the languages of men and of angels in 1 Corinthians 13.1. I know it's a spiritual language. Now, God is the creator of all languages. So they can be angelic languages. They can be uh, various spiritual languages. They can be languages of human cultures, past, present, or future. But they are nonetheless, they are languages. And God will give you a unique prayer language, much like there's not two snowflakes alike. I've never heard two prayer languages exactly alike. But as it begins to flow, your, your spirit will fill up with the power of the Holy Spirit and it will overflow in a great way. So that's uh, taking a step of faith. The next thing I want to tell you about how to minister and receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit is when the person starts speaking in tongues, we always instruct them after they pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't speak in English anymore. Just speak in tongues. And we let them speak in tongues until it's flowing uh, for a great deal. Then normally what we do is we stop after a while, after they're speaking in tongues for 5, 10, or 20 minutes, and we just say, okay, now, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and 15, Speak in tongues a while, then speak in English a while. Sing in tongues a while. Sing songs of praise in English. Understand the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. You can start speaking in tongues whenever you want. You can stop speaking in tongues whenever you want. Uh, when I worship, I worship in English. I worship in tongues all the time, every time I worship. I, I speak in tongues every day, builds up my spirit, it edifies my spirit and so forth. I sing in tongues, I sing in English. I pray in tongues, I pray in English. Um, 
So that's, that's something that's in, you know, then normally what we'll do is have them do that for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or so forth. We'll have usually try to have someone who ha plays the guitar and is a worship leader and we'll sing worship songs and we'll sing worship songs in English and sing worship songs in tongues. And, and we'll just have a great joyful time flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember people are stepping out of a realm where they've been entirely conditioned to be natural minded for all their life. And God is blowing that away in one, they're beginning to blow it away, in one great, wonderful experience that was meant to happen at the beginning of our Christian lives that hardly ever happens in most uh, traditions at the beginning of our Christian life like it should. So that's another uh, tidbit. Now, a final thing that we often do, and this is one of the reasons we like to have a team of three, four, five very mature and anointed brothers and sisters in the Lord in the prayer meeting, people who are not walking in besetting sins, not rebellious, people who've broken through to a, a mature, spirit-filled, regular experience. Um, as you have those people there, one of the things that's very missing in our gospel today is that people today think in terms of being forgiven of their sins uh, having Jesus be their savior so they'll go to heaven and not go to hell. That is a little bit of the gospel. That is far from a great deal of the gospel or most of the gospel or, or you know, a lot, 80, 90% of the gospel is missing from that equation. So we've talked, we addressed that a little bit earlier in this message. But one of the things that's missing often is that like when Jesus encountered Paul, Paul said, who are you, Lord? He knew right away who he was dealing with was the Lord and master. And Jesus told him, there's three or four places in the New Testament where Paul gives an account of that experience. And it, it, Jesus said, I will show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake, and I will send you to the Gentiles. Paul receives a calling in his conversion. Now, one of the reasons it's so hard to get Christians to be missional and join in the team spirit and the team effort of their local church nowadays is because we have converted people to being consumers of religious services. And we are used to high quality television. We're used to high quality music. And we go to church to, that that's why the mega churches do so well because the pastor's a good speaker, the music is high quality, the electronics are high quality. None of it may have great substance. Much of it may be misguided or misinformed. And off, most importantly, often it's not calling them into the purpose and mission of God for their life. So part of and a great deal of the purpose of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus always was born of the Holy Spirit, but he was baptized in the Holy Spirit as he was preparing to be launched into ministry. And he is our model. Jesus told the disciples that you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. A great purpose of the baptism in the spirit which the new testament christians as you see in acts 19 we the last teaching in this series went through that uh, it, it happened at the beginning of their christian life because being called into the family of god being called into the corporate mission of a local expression of, of christians is part of being converted 
That's supposed to happen at the time you receive Christ. You're supposed to get a sense of purpose and destiny and mission. And I'm going to have to sacrifice and I'm going to have to memorize and study. And I'm going to have to be changed into a whole new kind of person. That's what it means to be born again. Now, I say all that to say this. One of the final things we do when we're praying for people to get baptized in the Spirit is after they've spoken tongues for quite a while, then after they've spoken in tongues and spoke and learned to praise in English and sing in English and sing in tongues and, and they're flowing in the Holy Spirit and so forth, we will continue to worship as they and we will continue to encourage them to sing in tongues and speak in tongues. But one after another, the, the people on the team will lay hands on the guy or the lady and put their hands on their shoulder or their head or whatever and pray over them in a prophetic way, calling them forth into their purpose. That's part of the spiritual fatherhood. Your father is actually supposed to, one of the blessings your father is supposed to, to, to do is he's supposed to teach you as a young boy or young girl, you are special, you can do it, you're called to this, you're going to have to you're going to have to become an amazing character. You're going to have to study a lot. You're not going to be like the other children. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're not going to always quite fit into this world, but you're going to do amazing things for God. You were destined for that. You won't find any happiness in this world as long as you still keep messing around with trivial stuff. You'll only begin to find your destiny as you start to sacrifice toward that which is important and that which will change the world eternally. Now, that's important. That's supposed to be part of the gospel. And so one of the things we always do is kind of the end, last 20 minutes or half hour, because uh, when we make these baptisms in the Spirit, they last about an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, individuals are worth it. Small groups, if I, we're praying for two or three people, I don't think I've hardly ever prayed for more than around three people to get baptized in the Spirit at one time. And uh, But as we do... Um, we prophetically begin to, now, I'm not talking about directive prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14 says that the purpose of prophecy is comfort, exhortation, consolation, encouragement, and so forth. Not, I'm not going to prophesy over them that they're going to marry some kind of person or specifically go to this country or whatever. But in general ways, I'm going to prophesy a sense of what they're called to do in terms of studying God's word and proclaiming his gospel and and sacrificing for his church and, and so forth. Uh, one of the most um, memorable ones for me was uh, we were praying for a young man who had uh, Christian worship music and, and made CDs and so forth. And he was frankly kind of one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord and struggling and a lot and so forth. And one of the guys on the team prayed over him and said, I believe the Lord wants you to learn how to worship the Lord alone a lot of for for a long time worship the lord by yourself with no audience with no human praises only with the praises of god you praising god and you receiving the blessing and favor of god and you and the father being intimate and enjoying one another as you worship him and so that as you as you step out in this gift and calling you have to lead worship and do Christian music, you won't care anything about the people anymore. It will all be postured toward loving God and worshiping God. Now that was a very prophetic kind of prayer that a member of our team prayed over this young man. So uh, that's kind of the final thing in terms of how to help people get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now. Lastly, I want to close by just talking about the value of speaking in tongues. 
Um, there's three things here that I want to emphasize. First of all, speaking in tongues is for edification. The Greek word is oikodomeo. We get economics from oiko and we get domestic from domeo. It literally means the law of the household or the management of the household. It means to build up your or strengthen your house. Your spirit is the dwelling and temple of God. Corporately, our spirit is a temple of God. Individually, our spirit is a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That should be enough to cause any of us to speak in tongues quite a bit. However, verse 14 says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So again, spiritual prayer. Verse 17 says, for you are giving thanks well enough. So you're giving thanks. All of that is is positive. It's edifying. It's building things up. Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, building up yourself on your most holy face, faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not just praying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is speaking in tongues. Scripture defines scripture. And Paul already defined it as saying, if I, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays. Praying in the spirit is praying in tongues. Now, secondly, it's for thanksgiving and praise. 1 Peter 1.8 says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. I love my wife's testimony on this. In, she was 15 years old. It was October uh, or November of 1971. She'd been a Christian a few weeks. She was reading her Bible, and she began to, in her room by herself, she began to sing songs of praise to God. And all of a sudden, she was overwhelmed with God's presence and felt like, I wish I could praise you better, but I can't really express how much I love you, Lord. And, and she was receiving God's love and loving him back. We love because he first loved us, First John 4, 19, uh, or 21, something like First John 4. Um, and she, all of a sudden, she began to sing to God in an unknown tongue. She'd never heard about the baptism of the Spirit. No one had ever taught her. She went to the fellowship. Fortunately, uh, it was a young, growing little fellowship. She explained to some of the young ladies there what had happened to her, and they said, oh, you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, but she was giving thanks and praise, and it was joy inexpressible. It was beyond what she could express, so God gave her a spiritual language to express it. Now, uh, Acts 2.11 says, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Notice a primary purpose of, of speaking in tongues was never sharing the gospel. That's so evolutionary and it's thinking I, I really don't have time to deal with that other than to say that all the people in that audience were Hellenized Jews. They all spoke Hebrew and, uh, and Peter addressed them in one language, but they did hear them in their own national languages. They spoke many languages like most people of the, the world today. Uh, Americans are one of the few cultures where we only speak one language. But they, these, these people spoke their national language. They spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek. They spoke Latin. And they heard them speaking in their national languages, not the gospel, but the mighty deeds of God, which includes the gospel, the great things God accomplished in Christ. Um, but they were hearing the praises of God is what they're hearing. Acts 10.46 says, For we hear them speaking with tongues and exalting God. They were when when Cornelius and the Gentiles received the baptism in the Spirit, they were speaking in tongues and praising God. A third reason for the value of speaking in tongues is prayer. We've already talked about 1 Corinthians 14, 14, my spirit prays. We've talked about 1 Corinthians 14, 17, you're giving thanks. Jude 20, praying in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, 
For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this leads me to something. one last thing I forgot in the previous section, section C. When we're praying with people to get baptized in the Spirit, when you're praying with people to get baptized in the Spirit, encourage them to yield fully to the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you why. And, um, we English-speaking people are the most emotionally repressed people in the history of the planet. We don't like to lift our hands or clap or show much emotion for funerals, weddings, worship, any, <laughs> anything. Almost all cultures of the world, the reason, you know, in Brazil or Rwanda or Nigeria or Kenya or all sorts of other places in the world, the reason they worship for two, three, and four hours and they shout and lift their hands and clap is not because they're backward, just because they're not English-speaking, emotionally repressed people. Uh, so when you get baptized in the Spirit, everybody is taught in English-speaking circles, don't be... Don't be emotional. Don't be afraid of emotion. Well, the fruit of the Spirit includes joy, <laughs> uh, peace, and so forth. So if, as you're praying with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, let your emotions go where the, where the, where the sense of the Spirit as you're speaking in tongues wants them to grow. You may start shouting praises. You may start laughing. And you may start groaning uh in a, um, like an Italian gr grandmother, oh, Maurice, I want Polly to eat ice cream every day. You, you know, like you might start praying with compassion, uh, feeling the hurt of other people and so forth. But let the Spirit take you where he will. One of the things you'll find is that our spirits are often like a, a if you can picture a big dammed up river, and uh, it's been dammed up so long that on the side where all the water is, there's dead frogs floating around, some pond scum, a couple old beer bottles, you know, some tires, and, and uh, it smells kind of bad, it's kind of stagnant and, and so forth. Most of us are living a spiritual condition like that. One of the purposes of getting baptized in the Spirit is as you pray in an unknown tongue and your spirit prays and you're speaking the mysteries of God and giving thanks, it's like a trickle of the God's regenerating, renewing, reinvigorating, powerful, pure Holy Spirit pouring through your spirit and beginning to break that cracks in that dam. Now, for some people, the dam will break all up the first experience. They might experience healings from spiritual wounds. They might experience deliverance from demons. They might experience powerful things. They, on Acts 19, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. But let the Spirit take you where he will. Don't uh, shrink back in unbelief. And follow the Spirit's uh, emotional tone. You may be, start praying and groanings too deep for words. You may start interceding. You may start laughing. Uh, you may start uh, being angry in, in doing spiritual warfare. Uh, Romans, or Ephesians 6.18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. But now that verse 18 
pray at all times in the spirit means speaking in tongues, but it's in the context of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Verse 18 is right, right three quarters of the way through that whole passage about spiritual warfare. You'll find sometimes when you're speaking in tongues that you'll be aware that you're doing sp perfect spiritual warfare. And there will be a commanding tone or even sometimes an angry tone. God is angry at uh, wicked spirits. So uh, that's the value of speaking in tongues. So hopefully those are some helps on how to get baptized in the spirit, how to help other people get baptized in the spirit, how to impart the baptism in the spirit, or how to receive the baptism in the spirit. Amen.